This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Jonathan Friedland. 2022 is a big political year in the United States, the year of midterm elections, which could make or break the presidency of Joe Biden. There are different states in the Union fighting different contests, and many of them have caught our eye already. We've talked on the podcast about Georgia. But now our attention turns to Ohio, which is proving to have a humdinger of a contest. So far, the battle is all on the Republican side as they seek a candidate to fight for that state's Senate seat, a seat that becomes open in November. Last week, one of the candidates for that nomination, Bernie Moreno, dropped out of the race. And it's revealed in some ways the limit of the Trump way of doing politics, because he tried very hard to be the Trump candidate and it didn't quite work out. Instead, he's left a whole lot of others behind wrestling and fighting for the mantle of Donald Trump. It's a perfect indication of what's happened to the Republican Party. And therefore, I wanted to talk to somebody who is on the ground following that very juicy contest. I turned to Andrew Tobias. He's a political reporter for the wonderfully named Cleveland Plain Dealer, the main newspaper in the state, covering local, state and federal politics. I started by asking about this latest dropout from that Republican race. Who was he? So uh, the candidate who dropped out is Bernie Moreno, who is a first time candidate. I can't say that he was really known outside of Cleveland before he ran. He is a well known in Cleveland for having started a chain of luxury car dealers. So just basically a successful businessman. And he actually had a pretty good fundraising performance with regards to outside money, too, which is not necessarily true of all the candidates in this race. And he spent just three or four million dollars on ads through the month of December and January, which is really kind of unusual because usually what you hear about people who run campaigns is that they talk about spending money and running ads when people are really thinking about voting kind of in the last 90 days before an election. And, he, you know, this whole race is kind of almost set up like an arms race or something where all these candidates are trying to outdo each other and kind of moving that timeline back. So he spent several million dollars of his own money, but really only got up to like eight or 10% in the polls that we see, which we sort of are well skeptical of. But, you know, he dropped out kind of unceremoniously as it took uh, us by surprise. It took the other campaigns by surprise. And he basically said that he met with former President Donald Trump, kind of reading between the lines, it was clear that Trump was not going to endorse him. 
you made a reference to, I guess, not crowding the field with too many MAGA candidates. You know, we're not really sure entirely what to make of that. So it was a very short-lived campaign, of course, but for while it was running, what was it like? You know, it's interesting because uh, I knew him pretty well before he ran. You know, I was honestly surprised that he ran for office in the first place. He was politically active, kind of giving money and stuff like that, but he never struck me as the type who ran for office. And so through the course of his campaign, the ads that he ran, um, you know, his, his reputation in Cleveland was, you know, I mean, he wasn't really in the public eye, but people thought he's kind of more of like a moderate business-friendly Republican type, and the, the tone of his ads were, were pretty strident. Controversial. Remember, George Bush is somebody that the left loves now. He's a hero of theirs. It's kind of amazing what's happened over the last 20 years when George Bush came, became the hero of the left, and they Cheney's shaking hands with Liz Cheney in Congress. They were pretty nationalist. It was, you know, similar to, you know, clearly trying to appeal to uh, Trump voters and that kind of thing. And so it's interesting that, you know, some of the commentary that you see from people who just basically never even heard of him several months ago, kind of like, okay, well, you spent millions of dollars of your own money, you never got endorsed, you dropped out unceremoniously. And now, you know, you have a certain amount of controversy around you. So it's really interesting to see kind of like the whole trajectory of the whole thing play out. In other words, here's a guy who spent millions of dollars and probably damaged his own local reputation. Yeah, quite possibly. I mean, there's two interesting sort of trends there that you could compare, you know, outside Ohio. The first is that, as you say, there was a time where the millionaire business-friendly candidate was a very familiar type and often did quite well and now not doing so well. And I'm thinking in a completely different context, but of Mike Bloomberg in the Democratic race, millions of dollars on advertising and just made no headwear at all back in 2020. But the other trend is this thing you've talked about and the figure of Donald Trump. And I, I know that Bernie Moreno at first was pretty hostile to Donald Trump. And I think there was a remark he'd made to a colleague in writing saying, I can't support a party led by that maniac. Trump was a lunatic invading the party. But he made this big journey and then became, uh, you know, as you say, a MAGA candidate, a Make America Great Again candidate, a a pro-Trump guy. Did people just not buy that journey? You know, it's been a journey for all of us, I think. (laughs) So (laughs) he made that comment back in 2016. I was Cleveland, uh, hosted the Republican National Convention that year where Donald Trump accepted the Republican nomination. I remember very well. I mean, Ted Cruz, who's a senator from Texas. We will unite the country by standing together for shared values. Kind of higher profile was there. And there was this whole controversy about whether or not the delegates would vote for Trump and let him get the nomination. And he basically got booed off the stage. He made this kind of like last stand sort of speech. And then it's kind of gotten like, dropped into the memory hole along with a lot of other comments that people made around that time about Trump and as he's kind of consolidated his control around the Republican Party. So uh, Moreno was one of those people, you know, like you said, he, he sent that email. And even afterwards, you know, he was on a local TV interview in Cleveland. Uh, somebody asked him about, you know, you support Trump. You know, what's that all about? And he said, whoa, whoa, whoa. And I guess something I didn't mention before. So he said, that's my daughter who, who supports Trump because his daughter was a Trump campaign aide is involved with politics. And that's kind of, I think, the inroad that he made with uh, some of the campaign connections he had. But so he was pretty clear that he he tried to at times say that he wasn't really a Trump guy. And I don't know if he had a, a personal conversion, if, you know, that's maybe he just wasn't on the record enough to kind of like flesh out his viewpoints. And so it didn't like come through clearly or something like that. But I think that's kind of issue number one on the, on the ballot is with the voters in the Republican primary want to know, you know, are you loyal to Trump? Do you support his agenda? And you see all these candidates to various degrees kind of going through contortions to try to basically prove, you know, to them that they are. 
So I was in Cleveland. I was in the hall at that moment where Ted Cruz tried to mount some kind of resistance. And you almost felt in that moment that the party had changed. It had become Donald Trump's party. And Ted Cruz and the others have all now had to change. Uh, Let's talk about those other candidates. And and a way into it, perhaps, is to just to hear the words of David Frum, who was famously George W. Bush's speechwriter, now a political commentator for The Atlantic magazine, among others. And Frum wrote, talking about Moreno, some of the candidates have weaker gag reflexes than others and can better choke down all the toads that need to be swallowed to be viable in post-Trump Ohio politics. Moreno could not fake sufficient toad-eating enthusiasm, and so he's out. So let's just talk about two of those people who are still demonstrating their toad-eating prowess uh, who are in this race. Just tell me about the, the the two men who are both talked about a lot. And we'll start with J.D. Vance, just because he developed an international almost showbiz profile because of a book he wrote. Yeah, so J.D. Vance uh, is an Ohio native. Um, you know, you mentioned the book that he wrote, just called Hillbillyology. It um, came out in 2016, and it's kind of part of, you know, I think it did well because at that time people were trying to figure out this, uh, you know, political dynamic that led to Donald Trump kind of taking over the Republican Party. And it was kind of, you know, a global thing, too, to some degree of populist politics and stuff like that. But his memoir talked about him growing up in poverty and, you know, how he kind of navigated through that. And it was a very, you know, inspirational story. He um, joined the army. He, he put himself through, I think, Yale Law School. He became pretty successful in business. So, you know, around that time, he used the publicity around the book to basically become like this anti-Trump commentator. He tweets right after the Access Hollywood incident, fellow Christians, everyone is watching us when we apologize for this man. Lord, help us. It's kind of easy, I think, um, for somebody like Bernie Moreno to say, like I said earlier, maybe, you know, comment was misconstrued here or there, you know, as early in the campaign. So, you know, I had my own candidate and we're all, you know, emotional when we say things we don't mean or something like that. You know, Vance had a very comprehensive anti-Trump criticism that he made over and over and over again. And this kind of over time, you saw from him, um, you know, a a change in the comments that he would make about the president. And um, as he's running this race, you've seen some of those old comments come up and groups opposed to him and supporting other candidates in the race have run ads, basically quoting him at length in his own words. And it's something that we've seen interesting in there is that he's almost been branded as this anti-Trump candidate in this race. And that's not, not the campaign he's trying to run now. Because I've been very open about the fact that I, I did say those critical things and uh, I regret them and I regret being wrong about the guy. I think that he was a good president. He's trying to very enthusiastically say how pro-Trump he is. It's so interesting because he's, because he's as you say, he's got this back catalogue, a really big back catalogue of anti-Trump remarks. But it's worth stressing, he was so credible as an anti-Trump guy because he wasn't one of the sort of elite Washington, in a way, like the David Frums or the Bill Crystals. He wasn't one of those people. He was a kind of poet, a laureate for the left behind, coming from, you know, growing up in the sort of post-industrial poverty uh, in Ohio. So he had so much credibility when he attacked Trump. But as you said, he's tried to do this sort of volt fast and 180 degree turn and become the pro-Trump guy, even changing his look physically. I mean, he's got this beard, hasn't he, which people feel is like a Trumpy beard. Uh, I mean, you know, yeah, it's like the evil J.D. Vance versus good J.D. Vance or something like that. It's, <laughs> right. you know, it's, it's the, in the character arc, he, you know, yeah, he grew a beard, definitely. And so but he's struggling to uh, wear this coveted Trump mantle. Who is the other guy? And I know there's a woman in the race too, we'll come to her, but who's the other guy J.D. Vance is sort of wrestling with to get the cloak of Trumpism on his back? His name is Josh Mandel. He's a former state treasurer. And the campaign that he's running, 
you know, it's honestly, it, it's he's it's almost like he's trolling the rest of the field, trying to be outrageous, kind of leaning into controversies of the day. Joe Biden, I'm not even going to call him President Biden. He's not. Joe Biden is creating a constitutional crisis. But kind of strategically, he's targeting Ohio's uh, conservative evangelical voters. He's um, literally holding campaign events in churches, and that's been a very heavy focus for him. He's run for office for something like 10 years in Ohio. He's always been very conservative. I mean, I think he's definitely played that up more and kind of tried to lean into the moment of, of the issue that he thinks will help him run. But he and Vance, I think, are, are kind of competing for a similar type of vote because the whole thing really comes down to trying to get Trump's endorsement. Trump endorsing any of these candidates would be a game changer in the race. And that's what they're after. I mean, Mandel is coming out with sort of Trumpisms all the time. I've just just a little quick look at his Twitter feed. And there it is. You know, CO2 is not a pollutant, but AOC, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, is uh, illegal immigrants should be deported, not supported. He refers to the January the 6th rioters as patriots. I mean, it's all there. He wants to leave no room at all to his right by the looks of things. And it, as you say, it's all about trying to get the endorsement of Donald Trump. And there is a third person uh, vying for the uh, much-vaunted Trump nod, uh, a woman in the race. Tell us about her. Yeah, her name is Jane Timken. She is the former state Republican Party chairwoman. Um, Trump essentially installed her personally. And she really seemed like she might get the endorsement when she announced uh, it was early 2020. And it kind of seemed like that might be coming, falling into place. But, you know, it was actually an inter interview that she gave to me that was it's caused her a lot of headaches in the race. After the um, presidential election, you know, people are familiar with Anthony Gonzalez, who is one of the Republicans who voted to impeach Trump. And I asked her about that. And I think I caught her off guard. You know, the answer that she gave at that time was something like, I think Anthony's a good person. He thinks he's an effective legislator. I don't know if I would have voted the way that he did on that, but he's got a rational reason for doing it. And so that's kind of come into these attack ads saying, uh, Jane Timken doesn't know if she would have supported Trump impeaching Trump. And, you know, like a lot of these other candidates, she's never run for office before. Um, I mean, she has been very active campaigning for Trump in 2016 and 2020. So um, and she's also leaned into this critical race theory issue and kind of concerns about schools and kids and masks and lockdowns and all that stuff. So and, and, and then she also differentiates herself just by being the only woman in the race. I think something that all these candidates are going to have a hard time with is standing out from each other because Voters are going to be getting bombarded with ads. They're not really particularly familiar with any of them, perhaps, except for Mandel. And so she does have something to stand out. So, But that's kind of her story. What it all adds up to, the big picture here, is that it's just Trump influence all over this race. It's about who is most Trumpy, who gets Trump's approval. There is at the same time in Ohio, and this makes the state uh, extra interesting for political observers, there is another race going on, namely for the governor's mansion. And th there the Trump presence is much uh, less visible um, and, and, and maybe just less Tell us how come Trump looms so much less large in the governor's race and, and tell us who what the race is uh, all about. So I think the Senate race is kind of a political vacuum because there's really no prohibitive favorite. Whereas in the governor's race, Mike DeWine is running for reelection and he's somebody who's held elected office for better than 40 years. And I would say through the course of the coronavirus pandemic, which broke out not that long after he became governor, he might have become the most famous person in Ohio. Uh, Vaximilian has been a, a great success. Just kind of looked at some numbers. Uh, just the first week we went uh, from the previous week before uh, the announcement, we had, I think, 92,365. 
people got the first shot. He became very well known because he had a daily kind of streamed television show that people would watch uh, when people were scared earlier on in the pandemic. And so what's interesting about him in a kind of natural political context is that he empowered his public health director to kind of sound the alarm bells on the pandemic when maybe others in the party were trying to downplay it. He didn't never instituted a statewide mask mandate, but he uh, encouraged it. He uh, has been very pro-vaccine um, in, in promoting the coronavirus vaccine. He also did, uh, early on the pandemic, take steps to close down events, close down bars, and close down restaurants. So he's this Republican who took a pretty muscular response to the pandemic in a party where, you know, like voters are very skeptical of those things now. It's clear uh, that certainly based on what we know now that Joe Biden is the president-elect. And after the election, DeWine was among the first Republicans to acknowledge that Joe Biden appeared to have won the race, which he was basically saying water was wet, you know, but that got Trump's attention. He kind of fired a shot across the bow on Twitter and said, hmm, wouldn't it be interesting if somebody were to primary him? That basically never happened, though. I mean, that's 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 part of it. You know, a couple of more prominent Republicans looked at the race and decided to pass. And then you basically have three candidates who are running against him now who all kind of honestly are probably on a similar playing field um, as far as kind of being somewhat, you know, having like a niche, but not being overly well known. And so they're kind of appear to be splitting the vote. And so we just we definitely see DeWine. He's going to be in a position to get reelected and, and Trump's basically taking a back seat in the race. Listening to that and looking at Mike DeWine's record in handling the pandemic, you could imagine people thinking, well, OK, that's an old fashioned, good government rational, believe the science kind of Republican. And if that's the case, that doesn't leave too much room for Democrats to run against him. Yeah, there's other cultural issues that DeWine is uh, very conservative on. He signed what basically amounts to an abortion ban, although it's it's um, it would born abortion after six weeks after conception, the vast majority of abortions. Um, you know, he signed a gun bill, things like that. So he has a record to point to. So just I wouldn't want to cast him as like this progressive Republican or anything like that, but it's all relative these days. And so what, you know, honestly, you know, 2022, as, as your readers or as your listeners, I'm sure know, it's expected to be a good year nationally for Republicans. So Democrats have a pretty rough um, chance at trying to win the race. I think the one thing that they might be hoping on, we see some evidence in the polling that there are anti-DeWine Republicans who say that they'll just they, they'll stay home or maybe they'll even vote for a Democrat or a third party candidate. So like I said, just with the way the race has, has turned out in the primary, it just it doesn't seem like any candidate's going to step through to consolidate the race. So it'll, it'll just be interesting to see what kinds of effects it would have in November. But certainly you'd think that he'd be favored to win that, that or two. And in terms of Ohio itself as a state, where would you now place it on the political spectrum? Certainly at presidential level, it was always seen as a swing state, a kind of purple state. Now, given the way the governor's races have gone, given what's happening for this open Senate seat, is Ohio looking more and more solidly red? Yeah, it's, you know, we're kind of sad that it's not a swing state in the political media realm. I mean, it just makes the race less interesting to cover every four years. But uh, I wouldn't say it's a, a red state in the sense of like Alabama or Texas, or which actually, you know, of course, it's turning blue. But it's, you know, I don't, I don't think it's like a staunch Republican state by any means or anything like that. But like, it's probably more like Missouri, which occasionally elects Democrats, but generally elects Republicans, or perhaps even Kentucky or Kansas, which elected Democratic governors in 2018 when Mike DeWine ended up winning. I'm not asking you at all to gaze into a crystal ball because that's never fair, but is it now sufficiently safe Republican territory, Ohio, that actually in both the governor's race 
and the Senate race, because we were talking all about the Republicans in that Senate race vying for Trump's approval in the primary. But is it safe to say that actually the Democrats don't really have much of a shot in either of those contests? So I think there are scenarios where Democrats could win. This is not the year that I would pick for a Democrat to do well in Ohio, kind of because of all the other ways that they have to swim upstream here. But so Tim Ryan is the likely Democratic nominee in the U.S. Senate race. He's a congressman from the Youngstown area, which is really one of the epicenters of the kind of dynamic of former blue collar Democratic area shifting pro-Trump. So I I would not write out Tim Ryan or write off Tim Ryan as possibly winning that race. He he still has a primary against a a lesser known opponent who, you know, it's, it's that still has to happen. But we have no reason to believe that he won't win that. And if you're Tim Ryan, do you who do you want to face? Is it Josh Mandel or is it J.D. Vance or I mean, who of these candidates, if you're the Democrat, do you want to be up against come November? I think, you know, there's definitely a school of thought that Josh Mandel might be somebody that they would want to run against. Mandel's run uh, in 2012, he lost to Ohio's other senator, Sherrod Brown, who is a Democrat and who was reelected in 2018, by the way. So there is a path, although it involved in his case being very well known and not having a very strong challenger that year. But the idea is that, you know, Mandel, like that people who pay attention to the race kind of see like his, his brand of politics is very performative. It might be easy to cast him as being too extreme kind of for like your average Ohio voter or something like that. So that, that's probably the case. But honestly, Democrats should be more concerned about what kind of campaign they're, they're going to run as opposed to who they might draw as an opponent. Just before we leave the Ohio race, in terms of the national uh, dimensions, what is the dynamic for, uh, you know, Democrats in a state like Ohio now? Is Joe Biden a big drag for them? Is the fact that the cost of living is rising and coronavirus has not gone away, death toll passing a figure of 900,000 nationally? Does all of that mean that the party of the incumbent president is really pushing the boulder uphill to win and gain seats, yes, in Ohio, but across the country? Uh, Yeah, definitely to all of that. I mean, voters are very well tuned to kind of how things are going in the country. And so you do see like encouraging jobs reports. And, you know, certainly we all hope that the pandemic is going to recede and that things go back to normal. But, you know, just the inflation thing or, you know, the supply chain issues that are well known to everybody. It's one thing to kind of run against someone, but like Democrats in Ohio talk about trying to differentiate themselves from the national brand where, you know, there's this sort of idea that, Democrats are the the party of the elite coast. You know, they look down on places like Ohio. It's a lot harder to differentiate yourself with a local brand from a national brand when kind of it's it's the national Democratic brand via Joe Biden that's basically on the ballot. So maybe something like the infrastructure bill that, that Biden pushed through or, you know, maybe even things will be better in a few months and there might be something different to talk about. But I would definitely I think with the, the president will be a drag, you know, on the election this year unless things kind of in the macro sense dramatically change. Before we leave you, Andrew, we always ask on the podcast a what else question on something, well, I was going to say completely different. It's obviously related a bit. There are three little words that have widened a rift among Republicans, and those three little words are legitimate political discourse, which was the words the Republican National Committee used to describe the January the 6th, 2021 attempted insurrection on Capitol Hill. It was a violent insurrection for the purpose of trying to prevent the peaceful transfer of power after a legitimately certified election. Some dissent from that coming even from the party's uh, majority leader, Mitch McConnell, who has 
condemned those words and condemned uh, the RNC for their censuring of representatives Liz Cheney and Adam Kinziger, who, uh, as listeners will know, are serving on that House Select Committee investigating January the 6th. Uh, we also saw Mike Pence break the other day from uh, Donald Trump's suggestion that he somehow could have overturned the election. Do, do, is this a pattern here? Or do you think um, Republican leaders have have sort of left it too late? Yeah, I mean, I remember well after the, the, the initial events of January 6th, it just felt like something that would be kind of like a game changer and a, a cultural moment that people kind of unite behind. It definitely hasn't happened. And so, you know, un until I have evidence to the contrary, I just, you know, everything that you see out of the Republican Party just becomes more and more consolidated uh, by the former president, Donald Trump. So I just, you know, there are certainly voices like that. Uh, it'll be interesting if, you know, somebody like Mike Pence, who was very popular with Republican voters and up until he wasn't, you know, like if maybe that has the ability to kind of break through the president's reach and his allies and the kind of media structures around him and stuff like that. But you know, I'm, I'm just I'm not holding my breath that, that we're going to see a, a major change from the Republican Party from what we've seen over the last year. Andrew Tobias of the Cleveland Plain Dealer. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. It was fun. And that is all from me for this week. As I mentioned last week, if you feel like switching off from the current and let's face it, often slightly depressing news cycle and would like to catch up on some of the best Guardian and Observer journalism that you might have missed from the week, do listen to our brand new podcast, Weekend, every Saturday. This week you'll hear narrators read how Shirin Kale tried and failed to crack Mastermind and Hadley Freeman's terrific interview with the Hollywood actor Will Arnett. So make sure to search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. And lastly, just to let you know that in a couple of weeks, I'm delighted to say this podcast will get a feed all its own. A reflection of the fact that so many of you are listening, for which many thanks, and that it is going to be such an important year in American politics. Don't worry, we'll still be coming out every Friday and we'll make sure you know how to find us and how you can subscribe. But for now, it's goodbye. The producer is Danielle Stevens. The executive producer is Maz Ebtahaj. I'm Jonathan Friedland and thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.